Welcome, everyone, and happy Resurrection Sunday. So uh, this Sunday, we're taking a quick break from our uh, exposition to the Book of Philippians in order to talk about uh, resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead. What does that mean? How does that concern us, or why we should be concerned with it? And the verse that I picked to do that is one verse, and that is Romans 8.34. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word, Romans 8.34. The inspired and inerrant word of God reads, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, today we rejoice in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead in a point of time in history. We rejoice and give you thanks that you have the power to give life and that you and only you hold those keys. Awaken us this morning, Lord, so that we know that there is life after death and that the physicality of death is not final. Bring us hope that we may trust in your powerful, mighty hand to save. We are the Jesus. So I titled this message Jesus is Alive and Interceding. Uh, very fitting that. Um, the scripture that we're read today, congregationally, Isaiah 53 talks about at the very end, right? That this, this Messiah, this promised one, is going, is going to intercede. He's going to be our intercessor. So we'll talk about what that means. Not only is Jesus alive because he resurrected, but he's also our intercessor. So, a question for us today is, why is it that we talk about Resurrection Sunday today? Uh, questions come up every year recurrently, like, oh, don't you know that uh, Easter and uh, the fertility gods and the bunny and the eggs, now that's pagan practice. Like, why do Christians engage on that, right? Uh, I think there's a, a time and a place to have that debate. However, what I will say is that if by and large, the culture and even around the world dedicate two days a year to at least be open to talking about the birth of Jesus at Christmas, either to debate it or whatnot, or at right around this time, during Easter time, during Passover, to even to try to come against Christianity and make an argument against it. If the world is even open to that possibility, guess what? We as a church, we are going to engage that. We are going to talk about it. And that's why we rejoice in speaking about the resurrection today. So with that, what is the single biggest obstacle in the history of humanity? Do we look back all the way to where we can take account of human history, the most powerful kings and rulers of this earth? What is the one single hurdle that no one has been able to, to overcome. One could be rich, one could be powerful, one could be 
mighty, I mean, healthy for a period of time. But sooner or later, the problem is death, physical death will come. And such has been the obsession with prolonging life, with immortality, that the concept of extending life, the concept of immortality, the one problem that humanity has is nothing new. Going back to ancient Greek mythology, talks about many characters that were able to obtain mythologically, right? Extension of life, immortality. And that idea of even if you die, how can it be possible to come back to life? That is a problem for the human beings as long as life on earth has existed. Even in our modern and scientific world, there are certain efforts that are either under development or under research in order to do just that, the extension of life. Some of those examples are just what it sounds like, life extension, that is the concept of expanding a typical human lifespan, either through medicine or technology. And the goal is to be able to do it for at least 125 years. Right, that's like the first step that science and technology sees that could be pretty possible in the near future. Another example is rejuvenation. That's the reversal of aging by replacing damaged tissue with new tissue. That is also something that's ongoing. A lot of research, billion dollar industry, right? To be able to have your body rejuvenated. And then a couple of other ones that are still uh, looking more into the future. Can you buy heard the story about Walt Disney? What do you do? Right? Frozen? I mean, whether that's true or not, I actually don't know. But that is something real that is uh, being investigated and analyzed. Chronics. So that's the storing of a dead body at low temperatures with the hope that in the near future, the technology will be there in order to bring a dead body back to life. Right? A lot of experimentation in animals and whatnot. And believe it or not, the scientific community is hopeful that in the near future they will start to make advances in that in that effort to bring a dead body back to life. One more example of mind uploading that is uh, further in the future, but what that basically means, mind uploading, is that as you are alive, you can make an exact digital imprint of your brain so that when your brain dies, your backup will take over. And that digital imprint of your brain will be so smart that it will react and interact in the same way that your brain would have done so once your physical brain dies. Right? So that's just some practical examples of how today our humanity, our very own culture, is longing for that need to extend life. Some more practical items or examples that you and I participate on a daily basis, what is it? With the purpose of extending, of holding on to life, what is it? Well, as we age, right? I, I turned 30 this last year, 
<laughs> and what is the uh, what is the constant thing that will and I watch my diet? It's not as easy to lose weight. Got exercise. I have to go to the doctor. Need to get a checkup. I just order some medicine because my joints are starting. Right? And I'm sure that most of you probably take some sort of supplement, vitamin, medicine, what have you, right? Try to watch your diet. In so many words, why did you do this? Because either consciously or subconsciously, if we are really true to ourselves, we are trying to delay death. That's the bottom line. Whether it's by diet, exercise, food, vaccine, what are we trying to do? We are trying to avoid death. That's the bottom line. Why is this so? Well, we turn to the scriptures. When we're trying to find out the common longing, the common denominator, the common struggles of humanity, where do we turn to scripture? Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us the answer. It's talking about God, our creator. And what's it say? It says, He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. But we cannot find out exactly what God has done from the beginning to the end. But we know that God has put eternity into the hearts of every human being. And hence, that's the reason why we hold on to life. We want to extend life. We grieve when the loved one dies. So then either consciously or unconsciously, we are trying to push death to the right, to the timeline, right? To the right. And then the paradox then becomes that the more we look into our self-preservation, our self-interest, our own life extension methods, the more we focus on that, the more we turn away from the giver of life. And it's this paradox that the more we pursue that and become occupied with extending our physical life, Typically, the more that our spiritual life is in decline. The words of Jesus reminds us of this in John 12, 25, which says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So then we start to see a prototype of as important as physical life is, our focus, if we want to keep life, should be in the spiritual, not in the physical. Nevertheless, the physical is very important. It's very important to God. It's very important to Jesus. And it does point us to reality in the future of a future bodily resurrection. But in order to attain that, our focus must first be in the spiritual, otherwise we will lose it. So today we have a reminder then that this physical death that we so much detest is not final. What we fear most, if we are honest, death has been defeated by the very one who holds the keys to life and death, to the grave. Jesus. He is triumphant over death. 
So then we're going to focus in three quick points today as we look at the scripture that we read. Why is it so important to know that Jesus rose and what does that mean to us today? First, we're going to see death. Why does death happen? Secondly, why did Jesus die? And then lastly, why did Jesus rise from the dead? So let's dig right in. Why does that happen? We look at the verse that we read, Romans 8.34. Let's take a look there at the middle of the verse. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Okay? So the reason death happens is because of sin. What is sin? Sin means, means missing the mark. There is a designated target, standard, and we all get a shot to hit that target. However, from the get-go, we can't do it. We miss the mark. That's the original language used. Someone that misses the mark. There's a standard, and we fail miserably. We miss the mark. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Missing the mark will lead to death. And then we know that every human being is a sinner by nature and choice. Never have we fallen into a sin that we don't enjoy. We like it. By choice and by nature. That's what we're that's what we're going to choose. It's in our nature. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, every human being is guilty before God and under judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, after that comes judgment. So then we have seen that death happens because we sin. It is confirmed that we are all sinners by nature and choice. And therefore, we are pinned with this disobedience, with this verdict, with this guilty verdict before our holy God. That's why death happens. Secondly, why did Jesus die? If death happens because of sin, because we miss the mark, we fall short of God's standard, the question becomes, well, wait a minute, why did Jesus die? Wasn't he a pretty good guy? I mean, how was he at fall being? How was he under the sinful curse? 1 Peter 2.22 tells us, talking about Jesus, says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him, that is Jesus, there is no sin. So then, how could Jesus die if he had no sin? Wages of sin is dead, we are guilty by nature and choice, but we know from Scripture that Jesus, being God in the flesh, he is sinless. He never sinned. How is it that he got to die? Jesus lived a perfect life, and he was the only one who never broke any of God's commandments, neither in word, nor in thought, nor in deed. What no human being could ever do, that perfect standard was met by Jesus. Perfect obedience. So then Jesus, this is the key here, Jesus becomes the bridge. He can close the gap 
between a fallen humanity, which has an eternity of holiness separated from God. Jesus becomes that bridge because he is God who became man, but yet without sin. So he is the God-man who can bridge that gap between fallen humanity and a holy, righteous God that will not and cannot be okay with sin. Just as in a court of law, the penalty for the lawbreaker needs to be paid, how much more is the case in the divine court of God's law where the punishment for breaking God's law needs to be paid? So then Jesus, although he never sinned, he was sent into the world to become a man, second person of the Trinity, God Almighty in the flesh, so that humanity could be rescued from what they themselves could never do. Because we are fallen from the ghetto, because we are sinful, because we are rebellious, because we are disobedient, and we cannot approach God on our own terms. We'll be wiped out. That's why Jesus came and volunteered and died, so that the path to a restoration with God, our Creator, could be possible. And we start to see the love of God, the compassion of God, who being complete in, him, in himself, needing nothing, because of his compassion, he chooses to save those who would otherwise be rightfully lost. God owes nobody anything. He is righteous in his judgment of a guilty verdict for each one of us. Now, somebody could say, wait a minute. I'm missing the mark, you know, sin, but I'm a pretty good person. That's that's a classic response. If you talk to anybody the street in the college campus, everybody thinks they're a good person. To which, again, we turn to scripture. Who determines what sin is? God does. We don't. So then, if we have ever put any priority higher than God, we are guilty of the first and most serious commandment. We are idolatry. If we have ever told a lie, even if it's a small lie, what about how we ever stolen anything? Even if it's small, even if it's getting out or checking out of work 10 minutes early? What about if we have ever looked at anyone with us in our heart? If we're honest, we have to recognize that we start going through the commandments and we have to check our box. Yes, I've done that. Because Jesus, when he came to the scene, when he became a man and he walked the earth and had his ministry, people tried to tell him that they were a good person. And Jesus basically put them against the proverbial wall by asking them if they have thought certain things. And Jesus said, basically, if you have thought those things, you are guilty, just as if you have done the same. So then the standard of Jesus clarifies the law, the commandments of God, and it becomes clear that not only if you do them, but if you actually think them, you are already guilty. And hands the disciples and asks, who can then be saved? It's impossible. To which Jesus replied, with man, it's not possible, but with God, all things are possible. 
And this is why the God-man, Jesus Christ, had to become a man in order for him to bridge that infinite gap so that our idolater, liar, thief, adulterer hearts could be restored and reunited with our creator, with our creator. Now, if that still doesn't condemn us, if we don't feel the guilty weightiness of our sin, that alone will condemn us because we know that we are being we're being bitter, we're being unconvinced of our own depravity. We could have bitterness, unforgiveness, we could stir up strife, we could have pride, etc. And we quickly see that we are sinners. And therefore, if we are taken to the divine court of God's law, and the, the record is set before us, just like in a restaurant when we go and eat and we order food and then the bill comes, I must admit that almost every time, I say, really that much? So as I start checking the line items, wow, I guess it was. Right? Sure, I'm not the only one who's done that. So like that with God, when he starts showing us the wickedness of our heart, we have to realize, wow, yeah, I am guilty. I am guilty of that bill that I've accumulated. And we will be found guilty if left to our own judgment, to our own worldly wisdom. So this is where the hopeless sinner wanting and aiming to enlarge and expand his lifespan lives as a guilty, condemned sinner before God. But this God is also not only a judge, but a savior who can rescue from his own righteous judgment. And we need someone to pay the penalty of our transgressions. We need an intercessor. Just as again, the analogy of the court example, we may be given a, a fine or a, an option to do time or to pay or both. And sometimes you say, okay, yeah, I'll do it and then I'll be clear. Well, because the offense to a holy God has been so great, no amount of good deed service or community service could ever repay what we have accumulated in debt. This is where Jesus comes in. Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice to appease the righteous wrath of God. Jesus is the only one with a perfect moral record that can pay this moral tap that we accumulate. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reads, for our sake, he made him to be sin when you know sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So then, my dear friends, are we aware that right now, if not covered without righteousness of Christ, we are tagged, we are pinned as guilty with a debt to an eternal God? Are we aware of that? Has Jesus, who knew no sin, become your Savior? So that his righteousness is now your righteousness. 
by coming before the judge and my moral bank account is bankrupt. I'm overdrafted. And Jesus needs to deposit his perfect righteousness into your moral bank account so that then you're good enough to Only with his righteousness of infinite perfection. If not, what will happen when God demands payment upon your debt? Jesus was perfect. He did not die then because of your wrongdoing in his heart. On the contrary, he died because he knew that putting himself as a perfect payment, his sacrifice on the cross, and only that would be able to satisfy the requirement of God <coughs> in order to make possible for us debtors, for us sinners, to be reconciled. That's why Jesus died. And now, why did Jesus rise from the dead? Third point. Looking back again to our main text, Romans 8.34, there towards the, towards the half until the end, it says, more than that, Jesus, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So let us be reminded that Jesus predicted that he would rise again. Not too long ago, I, I saw a documentary in which uh, it listed the false religious rulers, even up to modern history, that have predicted that they would die and they would rise again. Obviously, false prophets, false teachers. But yet, many people have fallen. Jesus remains the only one that predicted and fulfilled his own resurrection. Let's take a quick look at one of the references, Matthew 17, 22 and 23 says, As they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So death, the grave, keeps those dead that rightly have earned their way to the grave. Remember, the wages of sin is death. However, in the case of Jesus, death could not sting him. Death could not hurt him. Death could not hold him. Because Jesus was not guilty. He was sinless. Therefore, had the power to rise in victory from the tomb. We're reminded of that by Acts 2.24, which says, God raised him up. Losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The language used there is legal language. Such in the case that if somebody's taken as a um, as a guilty person into jail, but then it's proven that that person did not commit what is being accused of. If it's a righteous system, he will not be kept. He needs to be let go. Similarly, because Jesus has no debt, he has nothing to hold him in the grave. We are told in Scripture that the grave, death, cannot sting, cannot hold him. And therefore, Jesus is the mediator that we need in order to be reconciled to God. God is holy, and he cannot be approached our sinners. Anyone who approaches God on their own terms will be wiped out. 
So what does it mean when the scripture there says that Jesus is interceding? That means when there's no peace between two parties, no peace, no reconciliation, no other way, that there needs to be a third party that can bridge that gap in order to establish peace. Jesus is the one who then is the mediator, who is the intercessor. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And again in 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that everything that Jesus claimed, everything that he preached during his earthly ministry, is validated by him rising from the dead. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, and they fell backwards. When they wanted to stone him for claiming the title of divinity. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus said, and by the way, when you kill me, I'm going to rise him in the third day. Everything that Jesus said is validated. It is confirmed as true. So then, many ask, why are the Christians so pushing about Jesus? Why are they so hung up about Jesus and the only way? They're so picky. Why? Well, my friends, that's because Jesus is the one who uniquely holds perfection, who uniquely has what it takes in order to defeat death. No one else can fit that bill. No one. Because no one else is God. Only Jesus is. And in order to rescue fallen humanity, in order to do what humanity can never accomplish, perfect life, perfect death as a sacrifice for those who would be called his son and daughters, those who would be drawn to him. There's no one else who can do that. Nobody else can that. And therefore, we are thinking, and therefore, we are exclusive, and therefore, we do discriminate between Jesus and everybody else, and we make no apology for it. If we told you anything else, we would be telling you a lie, and we'll be encouraging you to continue on your way to destruction, your way out, and we cannot do that. Because trusting in the true and only true Jesus is what brings true everlasting only trusting in him. So then what can we say? We can say that death is real. Death occurs because we are in a fallen world. Within this past year, family, close friends of this very congregation have died. More people than we would like to have thought that would go this year. And we see it in the reality of death. Seeing a dead body laying in a coffin. I, I actually saw this last week with my cousin. Took his own life. It's a very sobering and sad reality. Seeing a dead body. And it seems at that moment like this is, this is hopeless. This is over. 
This is done. But may we be reminded that the physicality of death, when we breathe our last breath, it is not the end. There will be a resurrection because Jesus has resurrected. He has paved the way for the resurrection. Now, hear me. There will be a resurrection of the dead and of the living. A resurrection of those who are under Christ into everlasting joy. And a resurrection of those to everlasting destruction in a physical body. And that's why the physicality of our life is important. But in order to gain that longing that we have to extend, to prolong, to have immortality, we must first turn to the reality of the spiritual life, the spiritual everlasting life. We then see that Jesus has defeated death. Jesus was seen after he resurrected. First Corinthians talks about that. And even extra biblical accounts of this followers of Jesus of Nazareth that claim that their leader had risen from the dead. Now, the religious rulers and the political rulers of the time, they could have squashed it all if they produced a body. They never produced a body. To this very day, when you visit Israel, I've been there, and the tour guide said, well, this is a traditional tomb of Jesus, but he could have been over there, or there's like a third site. And guess what? We don't know, because he's not there. Because they were never sure. If the authorities of that time wanted to squash this immediately, they could have produced a body, and this would have been done in all the and this is, again, what sets apart Christianity from every false religion, is that Christianity is falsifiable. If the body of Jesus could be produced, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are of all men to be thinking. We are foolish. We're stupid because we are believing in a lie. But the body of Jesus has never and will never be produced as a dead body. Never. Because he is alive today. Amen. So then, our final question for today is, am I covered by the death and the resurrection of Christ? The scripture that we read says, who is to condemn? Well, for those that are in Christ, no one can condemn you. Only God can. And he's not going to because you are under Christ. Now, anyone outside of Christ, your sin condemns you. And you will receive the just, the just verdict of a guilty verdict by a holy God. Because God cannot be bribed. And God is holy and just and righteous. So then this is real life and death application to us today. That is, are you in Christ? Am I trusting in the perfection of Christ? Scripture talks about belonging to Christ, about coming before this great king to this great feast in the manner that you need to have the proper garments, the proper clothes. It's not going to be thrown out. And the imagery that we see is that you need to be put with a perfectly white spotless robe in order to be accepted. We are told that that white robe 
is nothing else than the righteousness, the perfection of Christ. Any other garment is tainted. It will not make the cut. Only the righteousness of Christ. Do you have that righteousness? It is then a call for us to repent, if you do believe, to acknowledge that we forget these things. We become too comfortable in our everyday life of thinking that everything's fine because I'm a Christian, because I said a prayer, or because I was raised in a Christian home. Our brothers and sisters, no, let us remind us of the gravity of our sin, of the holiness of God, and how much in debt we are to a holy God. Now, if you're not in Christ, then you know that. Trust in him. He's the one who will give you hope, forgiveness. He will give you assurance that if you were to die today, trusting in him, you would be with him. And gives you the promise of a new life in Christ, new desires, new lifestyle, new thoughts. That can only be done by God interceding in your mind, in your heart, and converting you. Not by us doing good deeds, because salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone. So then, my brothers and sisters, my friends, let us rejoice knowing that Jesus holds the keys to life and death. That immortality that we all long for, that the greatest problem since the beginning of humanity, when Adam and Eve fell of death, there is one person, God man, Jesus Christ, who has shown us that he holds the keys, that he has defeated death. And any other way for us to extend our life either here or try to find our own way to extend it beyond the grave is futile. It is worthless. It is foolish. When we come to the place of our death, if we are not in Christ, we will perish. Let us be reminded of that reality. And hence, turn to Jesus who has risen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for you are good. For you possess the power that has risen Christ from the dead. May you make that power real in us today, Lord. May we repent, may we turn from the futile ways, the useless ways in which we try to self-preserve ourselves. And may we look to you, the author, the finisher of our faith. May your Holy Spirit work in our hearts and our lives and grant, Lord, salvation for us, for our loved ones, for our family, for our co-workers, and that you would make us great witnesses of your resurrection to a lost world that is looking elsewhere for the thing that you only have. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to Jesus. Thank you.